Dry Desert of Northern New Mexico. This is Circle for Original Thinking. I'm your host, Glenn Aparicio Perry. Welcome to Circle for Original Thinking, America's electronic talking circle for visionary thinkers, an open forum for fresh ideas and timeless wisdom applied to today's political and ecological challenges. Each episode, we bring together creative thinkers from a variety of different traditions. We ask the hard questions on the important issues of the day. Political polarization, climate change, virulent viruses, and other symptoms of humanity being out of balance with the natural world. Our goal is to recreate a whole and sacred America and world, a new and improved version of E Pluribus Unum, from the many to the one, and this time not leave anyone out. Join us as we embark on this quest. And now we continue with part two of our fascinating dialogue with Jeffrey Mishlove and Leo Rookby on Time, Space, and Consciousness, A New Science of Life After Death. So I want to turn to back to Jeff now for a moment to ask a, a little bit different question because um, uh, I, uh, something that you are imminently qualified to answer, but but a, a question that most people uh, would find difficult, but it's one that you've been looking at for fifty plus years. Um, so Jeff, the simple question: Where does consciousness come from? That is a simple question, but it's not necessarily a simple question to answer. I know, I know. That's but, you know, great thinkers have been contemplating this question for centuries, if not millennia. And most recently, I think one, one of the greatest modern thinkers uh, who looked at it uh, was the founder of quantum physics himself, whose name is on the tip of my tongue. I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. Max Planck, or Planck? Max Planck exactly. Max Planck, who uh, gave an interview in the 1930s for a major German newspaper, and he put it very directly. He said, we can't get underneath consciousness. Consciousness is the foundation, and by that he didn't mean individual consciousness, as far as I can tell. He was talking about what philosophers often call mind at large. Mm. The, uh, the great German philosopher Schopenhauer referred to it as the one mind that sees through the eyes of every sentient creature. That uh, There's no getting underneath that. In fact, he said the entire physical universe emerges from consciousness, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Consciousness is, is the basis of everything that we know. And, uh, of course, you get the same idea from uh, the great uh, philosopher René Descartes, who, who said, I think, therefore I am. We don't have any uh, other basis for knowing the universe except through our own consciousness. That's where it begins. And uh, there's no getting underneath it. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Do you know how Descartes died? Uh, offhand, I don't. How did he die? Well, he was in a coffee shop, and they, they, they offered him a cup of coffee, and then they asked him, uh, uh, would you uh, like some milk with your coffee, Mr. Descartes? And he said, I think not. And poof. <laughs> <laughs> keep it light here but uh, we're, we're delving into some very very deep subjects so so uh, uh, I Leo if you would like to add some thoughts on where does consciousness come from please do yes I I'm, I'm still I'm still chuckling over over Descartes sudden demise there careful <laughs> <laughs> not to repeat that one um <laughs> Yes, I think, you know, we've, we know that there have always been these two theories as to how, how it works, consciousness, the brain, and so on. One is that um, the brain creates consciousness, and, and that model is basically like some sort of projecting type instrument, so that when you switch off the instrument, you switch off the brain, the consciousness also switches off, you know, like a television, like a projected film, that's it, out. And there's also another um, theory that the mind receives consciousness. So people have talked um, in the past using the kind of technological metaphors that were available to them of, of things like, you know, the, the telegraph and then the telephone. And um, you know, I've, in my essay, I came up with um, cloud consciousness to, to tap into our kind of modern computing metaphors. And, and that's essentially that, yeah, consciousness is out there and is received by this sophisticated mechanism of the brain. And if we look at these two models, we find that uh, the first one, mind-generating um, consciousness, has, has some considerable problems. Um, we've not really found where that consciousness is. You know, with all this poking around in people's brains that's been going on for, for some time now, um, we've been able to damage parts of it and invoke certain responses through stimulus and so on. But we've not really found consciousness. And we would be able to produce some of those effects by stimulating other parts of the body and not just the brain. So these sorts of um, experiments don't necessarily prove the model or that theory there. But on the other hand, when we think about all of these really strange experiences that people have and that they shouldn't have, according to the first model, you know, such as having um, what I called actual death experiences, because a lot of the most dramatic so-called near-death experiences happen when people are clinically dead. So they're not near death. They are dead and they should have no mental functioning and yet can come back and make detailed reports on what they've seen and heard and so on. And that just shouldn't happen. But these things have been verified. And, you know, instances like that, that, that shouldn't happen according to Model 1. But if the brain is only receiving consciousness, then yes, of course, when the brain's off, consciousness can still continue. And that model would fit the personal experiences that are reported by a huge number of people. So that's, um, I think, where we can start to think that we have the better model in thinking that 
brain receives consciousness. Um, and, it, you know, it fits in with this kind of mind at large or these kind of ideas that consciousness perhaps exists on a, a greater level um, than we think it does. Because, again, we have these very particular viewpoints. You know, we're, we're, we're kind of trapped behind our eyeballs looking out and we see time moving in one direction we see consciousness or feel consciousness or experience consciousness is really trapped within this skull but then we have situations in which um, we see that time doesn't always appear to move like an arrow and consciousness doesn't always appear to be trapped within the skull so that's that's really what got me into the um the theory of of um, the brain receiving uh, consciousness because it fits the um evidence that we have Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, thank you very much for, for that. And uh, um, yeah, and as Jeff pointed out in his essay, I mean, that's a, uh, I think you also pointed out some, uh, even a prior source in the, in the uh, 19th century, but Jeff pointed to William James in the 20th century um, with, with establishing the, the idea as the brain as a filter, a three-dimensional filter of consciousness, which makes a lot of sense <laughs> To, to me. And I think sometimes, guys, we don't have to uh, go to a near-death experience to, to, um, uh, to experience consciousness outside of the physical body, because at least for myself, I mean, I remember, you know, so many times when I used to use an alarm clock, which I haven't done for 30 plus years, but, but um, I would... Um, when the alarm clock would go off and I was dreaming, I could experience actually my, it was, it was sometimes called the boss soul, jumping back into the body. I, I clearly, my consciousness was someplace else and it jumped back in, you know, I mean, at least that's, it was very definitive for myself. I mean, I don't know that anybody's written about that much in the literature, um, but uh, that's the way I felt about it. Um, so, you know, we have a lot of these examples all around. Also, I would say, too, in the, you know, this idea of time as an arrow and linear time, it's really a recent idea, as I alluded to before, because, you know, in da Vinci's time, and particularly the beginning of his lifetime, he thought of the natures as emanating uh, consciousness, and the I was the passive receiver of that. And then it kind of flips, you know, after linear perspective comes in, it flips, and it's the I, the ego, that is now imbuing the world with movement, and that's how we kind of, uh, we usurp time as human beings. We kind of usurped it for ourselves. Um, that's where I would go with that anyway. And I think um, what you are doing, because of what's been happening you know, you both pioneers are building on the on what happened with quantum theory, and you're true scientists. I want to echo that, which are uh, working with that paradigm, as you, Leo, said in your essay. You know that time is an emergent property of quantum entanglement. Um, so I, I really think that's you're getting at something very, very important. Um, but Jeff, do you have any uh, any further things you want to add on consciousness? I bet you do. 
Well, I could say this, Glenn, that uh, one of the reasons that our society seems so resistant to uh, the ideas that Leo and I have been discussing is because we live in a, a materialistic age, and in particular, an age in which uh, science and engineering have produced all of these marvelous phenomena, cell phones and jet airplanes and nuclear bombs, uh, they are all regulated by uh, time as a uh, sort of the, the tick-tock beat that keeps all the mechanisms running. So uh, these days, everybody uh, seems to have a cell phone, and the cell phones are all attuned to the uh, uh, clocks that uh, come out of the Greenwich Observatory and that are accurate down to thousandths of a second. And uh, <laughs> computers right. around the world are all synchronized moment by moment. And, and we tend to buy into the, the idea that the worldview of uh, mechanisms the mechanistic worldview that works so well for technology um, should be able to describe everything in nature. It, it's gotten to the point where we think of ourselves, our human beings, as nothing more than being sophisticated machines. Mm-hmm. Do you think that, uh, uh, that some of these... Uh, technological devices, though, are just preparing us to become more psychic. Because I mean, I mean, you know, we we uh, there's a ton of literature about people anticipating phone calls. You know, before you had cell phones, but it seems like uh, now it's people can anticipate cell phone calls, texts, everything. You know, uh, is. Uh, um, you know, I mean, my wife and I have been married for 30, close to 34 years. So, you know, sometimes we answer the other person's question before it's been said out loud, you know, and then we'll have a little discussion. Uh, who, who did you re- uh, say, answer the question? You answered the question. I didn't even say it. She said, yes, you did. Because she just heard it, you know, isn't that a, so is it possible that the, uh, these material devices are just a, uh, a bridge to a more psychic uh, world? What do you guys think? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, because I, I think, you know, I, I, I agree with, um, with Jeff there that, you know, this kind of, mechanistic view is very depersonalized and, 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 you know, disenchanted and so on. But then on the other hand, we're with technology now, <clears throat> excuse me, with technology now, we're reaching really accelerated levels. And, you know, what does the future hold with that technology? There's a, a conference coming up with the Royal Anthropological Institute, and it's going to be online in, in June this year. And their theme is artificial intelligence and humanity. You know, what are the challenges? Um, what's, where are we going with this? And I'll be presenting a paper on really the construction of the afterlife through technology. And I think, you know, at, at one point we're seeing just a, a mechanical reproduction of, of people who have died. So, you know, you, we've already had these um, projections and in some cases holograms of people, you know, famously um, Freddie Mercury and Ronnie James Dio and so on have come back 
from beyond the grave to, to perform again in front of uh, their fans. Um, but clearly, the, that, that isn't the people themselves. So their consciousness is not returned. It's not there in these depictions. But as we move into accelerated machine learning and, and really quantum computing, and if we think of consciousness itself may be a, a quantum process within our brains, are we actually going to reach a stage in which we can communicate directly with consciousness through our machines because of that quantum capability? So that there are really staggering possibilities ahead, I think, that you know, only, only science fiction writers can really envisage for us. <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, to that a bit, Glenn, the, uh, there, there's a field known as instrumental transcommunication, hmm. uh, sometimes called EVP, electronic voice phenomena. There are tens of thousands of hobbyists around the world exploring this phenomenon. Uh, it's been going on now probably for a good half century, ever since the development of the early tape recorders. And uh, what you've got are people who believe that they are having conversations and often lengthy two-way conversations with their deceased loved ones using technology for that very purpose. One of the mm -hmm. foremost people engaged in this activity is uh, the uh, former Portuguese diplomat, Dr. Annabella Cardoso, who has published the uh, what was known as the ITC Journal, a regular journal publication of uh, reports from uh, these people. Uh, Dr. Cardoso Dosa has published in scientific journals uh, her experiences. She believes that uh, people who are talented, it takes a certain, I think you'd have to say mediumistic talent, but a, a penchant for doing it in conjunction with technology. And it's easy to laugh at these people and say, oh, it's just psychological projection, that okay. they're, uh, they're just seeing uh, things that uh, are random patterns, and then they imagine that they're having these conversations. But uh, researchers, including scholars from the Society for Psychical Research, have looked into this and have attested, particularly in the case of Dr. Cardoso, that the voices are clear, they are unmistakable, it's not a question of random sounds, and they interact back and forth in an intelligent way. So they're... Uh, there is a sense that, uh, yes, technology is, in fact, being used by you know, entities on the other side to communicate with us. So technology is the medium. I mean, yeah. it's the medium. So you don't even need the, uh, the, the human medium in there, you know. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and, of course, Jeff, you know the answer to uh, uh, what do you call a petite a uh, psychic who's escaped from jail. Right? Oh, you probably you run this by me in the past, but you'll have to refresh my memory. <laughs> it was a weird. small medium at large. Exactly. Small, <laughs> small, medium, small medium at large. Okay, so uh, anyways, I, I want to turn next to uh, the 
let's let's turn directly to the to the subject of of death. You know, I mean, so you know, uh, Leo, you already touched on it before when you were talking about how called some called near death experiences are really happen after a clinical death. So I think you stated, therefore, they're dead. But you know, that doesn't fit with the Western worldview that demands beginning, middles, and ends. So we just it can't be the end if they came back. You know, that's the way that uh, that that worldview. I, I'm sure you realize why they still goes in the category of near death, even after clinical death. So what what really is death? What is death? That's what um, I uh, uh, want you to to answer. And I'm going to uh, uh, go to who would like to take that first? But, but can I take that? Because you, yes, you, you kind of you you brought me up in during that question. Yes, um, I think so. It, it's a great question. What is death? Because it's again, you know, it's it falls into the category of things like consciousness and time. It is we think we know what it is, but it's difficult to define. And death has been problematic in, in medicine for, for some considerable while. When do we really say that somebody has, has gone forever? Um, and with modern medicine, we're being able to move those barriers further and further back uh, so that what would have been dead 150, 25 years ago is no longer necessarily dead today. Um, a lot of the skeptics will come in and say that, yeah, if you can be resuscitated, then you're not dead. But, but that's, not really, that's not really correct. That's just playing with words. What happens in death? You know, we, death is defined as, as um, you know, lack of um, heart function, um, lack of um, lung function. So you're not, you're not breathing, the blood is not being pumped around, and uh, the lack of uh, electrical signal in the brain. So you've got all the, the major components of what makes your body tick. Are, are, are off, they're out. And in that situation, there should be no um, sensation of consciousness, no conscious experience, um, because the, the machine is off. You know, if we're thinking about these machine metaphors that we have, then this, this machine that creates consciousness um, is, is switched off, it's defunct. Um, it, you know, it's just for, for throwing on the scrap heap now. But people come back from that because we've advanced these barriers um, with technology again so that they can come back from what would have been final and ultimate dead state and can report conscious experiences from those states. And then most importantly, uh, we have instances where those experiences are verified by other people who weren't dead at the time, um, you know, in the operating theater or whatever context it might be. So I think that, you know, we, we, we should use the term actual death experience because we've gone beyond what we would define as dead. The, the question of being able to be brought back from that is, is a technological aspect. Um, and again, that fits in with what I was saying maybe about, you know, artificial intelligence, that it's our technology is, is really going to be pushing at the boundaries of, of death, of life, and of life after death. And it's, and it's also going to be pushing at the boundaries of what we think consciousness is. You know, when we have artificial intelligence, what will that be like? How will it be conscious? How will we know? You know, will, we, will machines take this solipsistic view that they think and therefore they are um, and only think of us as their thoughts? So we're, we're going into huge unknowns here through technology, which is really, it, it's quite exciting as much as it's terror. 
mm-hmm. or fine. Mm-hmm. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Leo. So, uh, and back to, to Jeffrey. So what is death? Well, I think Leo has raised a fascinating point uh, concerning uh, the near-death experience uh, and describing it as an actual death experience. I would say, however, that the near-death experience is a mystical experience that's uh, akin to experiences that are reported uh, around the world by mystics of all stripes. And Uh, You don't necessarily need to be near death in order to have such an experience, or you don't need to have had an actual death experience in in order to uh, have that. For example, uh, there's been some wonderful research done uh, called meditation-induced near-death experience uh, with advanced Buddhist meditators who can go into a meditative state and, and have the same experience. Uh, which is indistinguishable uh, from the reports of near-death experience using um, psychographic measurements uh, such as the near-death experience scale, also known as the Grayson scale, uh, that is used to measure the depth of uh, such experiences. So when you ask what is death or what is consciousness, ultimately it seems to me that we have to look to the experience of the mystics. Mm-hmm. as a whole, and that when they say uh, that all is one, when they say that consciousness is is like a pure, clear space, uh, when they talk about ego detachment, uh, these things are all part of what it means to be human, what it means to be conscious. And uh, I would say that uh, our modern science of psychology is only just beginning to explore these areas. God, that's so beautiful. Thank you. I'm smiling from ear to ear. And it reminds me, I'm not sure if it was in both of your essays, but uh, you, um, I know that you brought up that near-death experience also brought in love. It all, so it's, it's, it's this it's the experience of oneness, the experience of oneness that, all, that everything is all radically interconnected seems to naturally lead to love. And, uh, of course, you've got love right in your name, Mr. Jeffrey Mishlove. So uh, I'm going to, but who was it who wrote about it in their essay? Was it you, Leo, that about near-death experiences and love, or was that Jeffrey? I think that was Jeff with that one. Oh, it was Jeff. So I go to you, Jeff. Why do you think that is? Yes, it's one of the most consistent reports that near-death experiencers uh, talk about. And uh, I think a good example is Elizabeth Crone. She's a woman who was struck by lightning and co-authored a book about it with uh, Professor Jeffrey Kripal called Changed in a Flash. And she talks about an experience of love that was so powerful that it transcended anything she had ever known. And she made a point of saying, I'm a mother. I know about love. I would say, you know, in terms of our conventional human love, the the love a mother has for a child is incredibly powerful. But she said, this was way beyond that. 
Mm. And she said, not only did I feel surrounded by it, I became it. And that's another characteristic that people in the near-death experience report. You're not an observer when you're there in the same sense that we are observers of our life here in this physical reality. You become what you observe Mm -hmm. uh, in in the near death experience or in the mystical experience it's it's a whole different way of perceiving reality by becoming by being it and mm -hmm. uh, the most intense uh, qualities of love are consistently reported by people who uh, have had this experience and also of course the mystical experience <laughs> great mystics report the very same thing Indeed. Indeed. And, you know, sometimes we can have that kind of experience just in a, in a dream, too. At least I, I feel I've had the experience where I'm not observing. I think we have a tendency, right, as soon as we wake up, we report the dream in the language of our waking state. You know, so it's I saw this, I saw this. But sometimes in the dream, the consciousness is diffused and it's it's in the whole image. I mean, it's just you're you're you said being it, you know, the love. I mean, if it's a, it can be completely immersive. Um, so thank you for that. That's really, really uh, important. Uh, and I think we could also add uh, psychedelics, ethiogens, uh, that, uh, and, you know, such as uh, magic mushrooms also take us to this place of, of complete interconnectedness. So, so the last question I want to ask uh, you, you both, um, and really, because this is really the, 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 the arc of this, of this, uh, uh, dialogue, you know, um, with all that we've said, I mean, how can we now go about creating a new science of uh, life after physical uh, death? Uh, how can we make that possible? I mean, how can we put our heads together here and make this happen? Now, turn to you, Leo. Yeah, I'd it's a good question. I, th I think that's where somebody like Robert Bigelow comes in mm -hmm. because, you know, he's, he can make these things happen. And with his institute, I think we're going to see a lot of interesting developments. Um, it's, it's a really exciting time for this subject. Because people have been working on it it's, it's for a long time. It's, it's the 140th anniversary this year of the Society for Psychical Research. And they've been asking these questions. They've been coming up with the evidence, um, scientific evidence over that period. Um, of course, we have evidence um, for longer than that. So we've got the, we've got the evidence. You mentioned that right at the beginning. Um, but now we've really got um, some energy in the discipline and we've got this new institute that can really forge ahead. Um, and I, I think that's that's what we need. Mm -hmm. I can add a little bit to yeah, that. Please, please add. I, I, I would say that uh, what we've seen going back um, 
to the ancient mystics, to people who have been exploring uh, through spiritualist mediumship, through uh, people who uh, are lucid dreamers, people who look at uh, hypnotic regression experiences or advanced meditation experiences. I regard all of these categories of exploration as as, uh, falling into what I call psychonautics, Sort of uh, the opposite of astronautics. Instead of going into outer space, they're going into inner space. And I think we're at a point today where these psychonauts are the equivalent of the explorers who 500 years ago or now close to 700 years ago in the 15th century, explorers were just crossing the ocean and discovering new continents. And now we're probing inner space and discovering new continents of the mind and coming back with reports about uh, what we're learning from inner space, lucid dreams, people who can learn to fly in their dreams, people who are looking at the interface between the dream realm and the afterlife realm, people uh, in quantum physics who are developing mathematical models of hyperspace and how consciousness and hyperspace may work together. All of these things are uh, enabling us, I think, at this point to create new maps of consciousness itself, maps that will include the afterlife. And uh, so I think we're at a very exciting uh, point in human history. Thank you. Um, uh, thank you for bringing in uh, uh, Gene Houston's uh, psychonauts. So you guys are you guys are those explorers. You're going into. <laughs> You're going into uh, tremendous uh, realms of consciousness that uh, others have not been uh, uh, willing to explore. Um, but yeah, I want to I want to kind of drill down on this just a little bit harder. See if you guys can help me here, though, because you know I took a class at uh, NYU a long time ago from a woman named Tamara Green. It was. Uh, um, it was. Uh, I was in the music business at the time, and I just uh, just uh, took a class. It was not uh, part of a MA program, but it ended up leading to me uh, joining an MA program. But the class was called, uh, and you might find this of interest, Leo. It was called Witchcraft, Magic, Alchemy, the Occult, and the Emergence of Modern Science. <laughs> and that and that class really changed my life, also, and because. Um, the the key thing that I noticed is that the narrative that is used by modern science today to try to justify a particular worldview is highly distorted. So what we learned in that class, which I'm sure you're both very well aware of, is that some of the people that are all often put out as the as the forerunners of modern science, um, the Newtons, the Galileos, and etc., they you know the typical narrative ignores the fact that they were uh, alchemists or uh, astrologers or, or anything that no longer is held in. Um, in uh, the New York Times favor to bring back in the New York Times, um, and, uh, um, and 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 yet, uh, so how can we change the narrative? Because really, I mean, you know, you're both incredibly articulate spokespersons for a different narrative, but how can we get that story to be believed? 
Well, I think what you're doing right now, Glenn, is a way to change the narrative. And you, there are a thousand podcasts and YouTube channels such as uh, New Thinking Aloud, where I'm uploading four videos every week uh, describing these things. I think ultimately uh, we're in a planet with uh, seven, eight billion people, and uh, they're all talking to each other. And it's a question of at every opportunity interjecting these ideas into the conversation. And the, the good news is they've always been part of the conversation. It's only this little blip of Western culture for the last three, four hundred years where the guardians of reality and the educational and scientific <laughs> institutions are trying to keep it out. But the general population has, has always had a strong interest and will continue to do so. And one of the wonderful things I believe about the internet is it's possible for people such as myself to establish a YouTube channel and bypass the guardians who would otherwise uh, forbid widespread public discussion of these things. Wow. And thank you for so much for all the incredible interviews you've done over the years. And thanks to your, your incredible volunteer staff that's, uh, that's cataloging them. Which is an immense task, but uh, uh, it's being done. It's 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 almost done, right? So it's fantastic. I, I really appreciate it. So, uh, any last thoughts, uh, Leo, before we come to wrap up today? Yes, actually, I, I just wanted to add. Um, it was funny to hear Jeff talk about um, psychonauts because about five, 10 minutes before he, before he mentioned that particular word, I had exactly been thinking about that. I just didn't <laughs> use the word later on. So I think, you know, somebody's reading somebody's mind somewhere there. Um, so that's, that's lovely to see because I, I, I think he's right. We're, you know, we're, we're exploring these new frontiers and there are a lot of people um, in this club now who are, who are doing that. And it, it does fit in with what you were saying about, the origins of science coming out of, you know, things like um, alchemy and so on. You know, alchemy became chemistry and uh, astronomy grew out of astrology and so on. So that there are these kind of, um, you know, not talked of origins for for the sciences. And I think that we're, we're going back to seeing that um, these aspects, these sort of more spiritual aspects, you know, the occult theory that everything is connected, we're coming back to those things through science. So science is kind of coming full circle on itself. Um, and that's going to be really interesting to see. Yes, that's very true. That was the basis of the dialogues that we held between Native American elders and Western scientists, that, that, uh, that uh, modern, in particular, quantum science had come full circle back to a Native American worldview that represented radical process and relationship. Everything is moving. Everything is interconnected because, you know, inside an atom, there really aren't any things there, as I think Alfred North Whitehead said. So, you know, it's... it's uh, uh, thank you for bringing in the word occult, which I just want to state though simply means hidden. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, it's a, we got to take it out of the cult realm and it's just, just means hidden. We have to bring it out of hiding. Um, and we're doing that today, I think. So thank you. Um, any last thoughts, Jeffrey? 
Well, I'm glad that we got to talk about love. Mm. Uh, I know uh, a wonderful philosopher, Neil Grossman, suggests that we should study the reports of the near-death experiencers who describe this heavenly realm of uh, love and see if we can't create a world here on this physical plane that more resembles the world they talk about. Oh, my God, what a beautiful way to end. Well, you know, I'm writing a book on love, so original love. So thank you. Thank you. That's that's a, a really perfect way to end it. I couldn't agree more. I mean, we create our own heaven and hell, and we can create a loving world. And so, yes, study love. Thank you, Mr. Jeffrey Mishlove. Thank you, Mr. Leo Rookby. What a what a scintillating conversation as I expected it would be. So thank you so much for the incredibly good work you do in the world. And uh, may you always be blessed. This program is made possible in part by Select Books, Waterside Publications, Bizgenics, and the Ecology Prime Media Channel. Produced and edited by Kenichi Sugihara. Native flute music by Orlando Secatero from the Pathways CD. Liberty Song by artist Ron Crowder, written by Ron Crowder, Jim Casey, and Danny Casey. The Circle for Original Thinking is a grassroots think tank whose mission is to seek out the deep origins of contemporary thought in order to remember and restore heart-centered wisdom for humanity and all our relations on Earth. This podcast is available on Select Books, Inc., Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever podcasts are normally heard. For more information, go to originalthinking.us or originalpolitics.us. And you can also find and purchase my books, Original Thinking and Original Politics, there. Thank you for listening. And until next time, many blessings of good health and well-being to you. Thank you.